Welcome to the Only One Shot Golf Podcast. My name's Jim Gallagher, Jr. This is Season 6, and we're excited to have you uh, on the podcast with us. Today's guest is entering her 10th season as the head coach of the University of Michigan Women's Golf Program. That's Jan Dowling. And she's not only transformed this team into becoming one of the best in the Big Ten after they won the Big Ten Championship last season, but one of the best in uh, college uh, women's golf. She took over in 2013, and they've had four regional appearances since she's been there, including back-to-back national championship appearances twice, including these last two seasons. So uh, uh, looking forward to hearing from Jan and uh, her great story and how she's turned this program into one of the elite programs in women's college golf. Okay, so your team have had some great success lately. You know, what's been some of the keys to you know, really the last two seasons of just getting to the NCAA's and competing with some of the best? Of course, you've been one of the best in the Big Ten, but what's been the key to the success? Uh, I would say incremental improvements. Um, some of that is with recruiting. We had some nice success in 2016 and 2017, and that helped get the players that are currently on our team roster. Um, to, to see that our team is making it to the NCAA championships was huge. Um, and then we've been fortunate to recruit some fabulous young women who are extremely driven and, and want to develop and get better. And when we finished second in 2021, that was the evidence that we needed to know that we could win it. Um, and we kind of came back with a vengeance the next year. Um, this team, you know, this is something we've been selling uh, through the recruiting process is, is uh, hey, like, you can come here and be part of the team that wins the first Big Ten championship for the University of Michigan in women's golf. And that's been a selling point for us. Um, and we've attracted the, the types of kids who, who really uh, latched onto that. And uh, that's been a key for us. I mean, these, these great women who want to get better, maybe have a little bit of chip on the shoulder themselves. Um, and uh, they came here to came here to Michigan to, to change the, the face of the program. It's amazing what a chip on your shoulder will do, isn't it? It's, uh, it motivates a lot of players. You think of Sam Bennett, just won the U.S. Men's Am. He plays with one major chip on his shoulder. And yep. I think it, 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 yeah. it I kind of, not a chip on my shoulder. I sort of had to do that a little bit too. Uh, yep. to kind of self-motivate myself. But uh, yeah, Monet Chun had a great week at the U.S. Am. I know you're proud of not only all your team, but especially her. What a great run she had out there at uh, Chambers Bay that we got to cover on the Golf Channel. Yeah, no, she uh, well, she got into the USM from her win at the Canadian Am. That's so right. She wins the Big Ten Championship, uh, has a nice June and, and July, um, goes and wins the Canadian Am the first week of August, uh, which I got to see, which was super cool. As a fellow Canadian, that was pretty special. Um and that got her into the USAM, and, and she just took off from there. But she's a fabulous young woman, uh, has one of the coolest comeback stories in, in golf um, that a lot of people wouldn't be aware of. But um, she's worked her butt off. She's one of the more patient. She is the most patient person I've ever met in my life. And kind of ironically, it can also be my biggest frustration as a coach yeah. <laughs> with her. And, uh, you, know, we, you know, she'll hit these kind of bad shots and you're like you know 
I want to react. Like, I obviously don't react as the coach, but I'm like, wow, she just hit that shot and she just goes right back to her same routine and, and plugs away and knows the feels that she needs to have to hit the, hit the correct ball flight that she, that she wants. And she doesn't get phased by anything. Absolutely nothing. And, uh, you know, she stays patient. She stays the course. Um, and just loves the game. She loves getting better. Uh, when she finished playing the U.S. Women's Am, the first question she asked was, "How do I get better?" Mm. You know, she she got to see Saka Bobby, one of the greatest U.S. Women's Amateur Champions we'll probably ever see, one of the greatest runs we'll ever see. And she kind of hit a buzzsaw there. But you know, she also was like, "Hey, how, how do I get better?" It was one of the best tournament golf weeks of Monet's life and she still wanted to improve. Well, so, you mentioned the story about some of her challenges. Tell us the story. Uh, Cause I believe when I was listening, I wasn't covering her that day, but th- there was times where she thought yeah. about quitting. Well, I don't know if she actually thought about quitting. I think that a lot of people would not blame her if she had decided to quit, but I don't know if that ever entered her mind. Uh, honestly, just the way that she's built, um, and how much she loves the game and how much she loves to compete. But, you know, she, she just went through a really hard time with her golf swing, and people have. I mean, she was hitting these high, weak, right cut shots with her driver and was getting her in tons of trouble and couldn't control the golf ball. And that's a horrible feeling as a player. We've all been there. Um, and it snowballed a little bit for her when she was, like, 16, 17 years old. And, you know, some schools that were recruiting her dropped off the map. Um, and thankfully we, we stuck with her. I know her swing coach very well and I knew what they were working on and I was like, this is going to work. And, um, and also with her work ethic, I knew that combination was going to work. And, uh, you know, we kind of hung with her through the recruiting process. She ended up taking a gap year. Um, yeah, I mean, she did things like miss the cut at the U.S. at the Canadian Junior Girls Championship, which is really hard to do right. <laughs> as a, for a player of her caliber to miss the cut at the Canadian Junior Girls Championship. And uh, you know, she just, you know, for for a player who had been one of the top ranked juniors in North America to have something like that happen, um, she just didn't seem to phase her. She went right back to work. Yeah, you know? I don't know that she wanted to quit, but boy, I tell you what, it enters your mind sometimes when you're frustrated. You've done it as a player. We've all done it where you're going like, man, this game's yeah. getting to me. And, and, and <laughs> I think that's where everybody says, I'm ready to quit. Now, I have done it <laughs> a couple times. <laughs> but you know what? It just draws you right back in. It makes you want to go out there and yeah. do it again. I mean, that's the beauty of yeah, it. it and, and you yeah. met, mentioned a northern school in, in Michigan great facilities, incredible academics. Uh, how do you compete against these schools and, and when you're recruiting uh, against the schools in the south and out west when the weather's maybe a little bit better? I mean, what's part of the recruiting uh, uh, process for you like? Yeah, it's it's a challenge in some ways. But, we, you know, it's, it's just important that we kind of comb through the players that we're, we're speaking with and, and try and draw them in with um, the attraction of, of – what you said exactly, which is big time athletics. I mean, you go to a football game with 120,000 people in the big house. I mean, that's a pretty special thing. Uh, the academics are, are great here at the university of Michigan, always a top three public school in the country and top 2025, um, school worldwide. Um, so, 
there's a lot of things that can be attractive, and and you've got to find someone that's not afraid of the of the cold weather. I mean, I never. <laughs> You're not going to hide the fact that we are in the state of Michigan, um, and we get snow, and it's cold, and you get players who are okay with it, and you get players who don't want it, and you know we just kind of say, hey, best of luck to you if, if that's if that's what they're looking for is warm weather 24/7. But um, you know the ones that that do um, show interest, you know we show them the things that we can help them get better at even in the winter time you can get a golf club in your hand every single day here at michigan uh we've got a great uh, great indoor facility great short game area uh it's wonderful in the fall and the spring um when the, when there's no snow on the ground um and so you know i think a lot of these players like respect a bit of a break too right yeah They're i agree competing. they compete um, they start competing in February for college golf, right? So you compete February, March, April, May. Then they go home. They compete June, July, and August. And then they come back to school. And not only are they competing in the fall tournaments, but they're also qualifying. So that's September and October. They're exhausted. By November, there aren't many college golfers doing a whole lot of practicing, like hardcore practicing in November and December. They got exams. They got Christmas break. They got uh, Thanksgiving so, um, it, it, you know, for these high-performer type A kids that are attracted to a place like Michigan, makes it a little bit easier for them to take a day off when um, when there's a little bit of snow on the ground or it's 35 degrees and pouring rain. So, well, it's not like your uh, tournaments are being played in the snow. Y'all are going all over the country to yeah. play, too, when it's cold. Yeah. I, that helps. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we yeah we go down to Florida. We've got a ton of alums down in, like, the Naples area. So we go down to Florida to train before our season starts. And uh, like I said, with our indoor facility, we got a, we get a golf club in our hand every day. So you get that break. Um, fortunately, we've been able to recruit kids from southern climates. We've got quite a few kids from California on our team, and, uh, you know, they go home and they play in in December when they're when they're home from the winter break. So, you know, there's there's a lot of opportunities, but it also keeps them fresh. Like we always talk about, like we're not trying to peak in February and March. We're trying to peak in April and May, um, and we're gonna go and compete and try and win every single tournament we play in the in the spring. But, um, you know, we're we're trying to peak in April and May when the championship season happens. You mentioned that I grew up in Indiana, so I understand exactly what you're talking about. And you I, know it. I, I, I lived that life. And, you know, I played basketball in the winter in, in high school, but I needed yeah. that break. And one thing you hit on that was very interesting, I talked to John Fields, who's the men's coach at Texas, and you talked yeah. about summer golf, and they play so much. Yeah. He said his kids, I said, what happens to Texas early on in the fall? You kind of struggle, and then at the end you kind of figure it out. He goes, my kids are tired when they come here in August. Yeah. And I never even thought about that, but they do. They play that yeah. full schedule, even though maybe their games you yeah. feel like are sharp, but they're wore out. And it's, and then you got to balance yeah. uh, academics and get back into that. And it's a challenge for you coaches. Yeah. And you've been coaching a while, but uh, let's get to know you, Jan Dowling, a little bit better. You mentioned Canada, and you grew up there. So tell us a little bit about how you kind of got started in this game, maybe who some of the early influences uh, on your golf uh, when you were maybe a junior golfer. Yeah, I mean, I was – um, so I started, I was a little bit of a late bloomer. I started, got a club in my hand when I was 11. Okay. Um, and that was my granddad. He bought, uh, our whole family club. He started playing in his fifties and, um, just absolutely fell in love with the game. And our family was really big into introducing my brother and I to sports that we could play for a lifetime. 
and so we skied and skied in the winter typical canadian skied in the winter and uh played golf in the summer those were kind of our two sports and i just i loved it i mean my brother's three years older than me i think part of it was that i could actually beat my brother at this sport and, and so i was like "Ooh, I, I actually have a chance here and uh, i looked obviously look up to my brother and I was like, oh, I think I'm better than my brother at this. And people, people kept telling me I, I had a beautiful golf swing. And I was like, well, okay. I don't know why I'm still shooting a hundred, but cool. So I just kept plugging away. Never really had any formal coaching. My parents uh, started the same time as me. So this was a new sport for them as well. And um, I grew up in a town about an hour North of Toronto and there's one golf course uh, in our town as a public place. And for whatever luck, one of the best, um, I guess, club professionals in Ontario bought our golf course. He and his wife bought it as, as a fun project, and uh, his name is Laurie Buckland. He's passed away now, but uh, he uh, was really my first kind of formal instruction. He was not a high-performer player. He wasn't a tournament player, but he really gave me some nice fundamentals, and then uh, where he helped me the most was connect me to Kent State. So mm. Herb Page, who's the director of golf at Kent State, he's a fellow Canadian. Uh, Lori, my, my club pro, called him and said, hey, like I've got this young girl, and she's, I think, pretty good, and she practices really hard. And so Herb said, well, we're starting a women's golf team in two years. Tell me more. And uh, that's how that conversation started. So Lori... Um, you know, again, like he taught me fundamentals, but he wasn't a tournament player. He didn't really like teach me how to play. Um, he taught me some golf swing stuff, but he was the one that catapulted me into uh, the U.S. collegiate system and beyond. And I've, I went to school when I was 17 years old. I went to Kent State, and uh, I've been in the U.S. Uh, in the golf world since then. Yeah, you I'm started. Incredibly the, grateful. Yeah, you started on a program that started from scratch. What was that like? That yeah. had to be kind of a challenge uh, for for Herb and everybody else that was involved. Yeah, no, it was incredible. I mean, Herb, Herb Page, and Mike Morrow were the two two coaches. Herb was the director, and Mike was our women's coach. And just I couldn't have asked for a better mentor than talking about having a coach that could teach me how to play golf. Those two were it, and. uh I knew I needed that. You know, I, I played Ontario stuff, Canadian junior stuff. And so I was starting to enter into the tournament world on, on a fairly high level. And, you know, my parents self-admittingly, they're like, we're not quite sure how to do this. And right. so uh, they were my mentors through this whole thing and really taught me how to play and score. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, I look back now and it was pretty special. I was super influence to go to Kent State because I knew I'd play. I was a late bloomer as I mentioned and I was like I can't go to like a you know not that I was getting recruited to you know some of these big time schools um, but I was like I can't go to these places I'm never going to play like at least my freshman sophomore year and I was like I need to play and so that was what attracted me their men's program was fabulous they were a top 25 team as a mid-major and I was like wow this is the perfect place for me and I, and I ended up playing every single tournament at Kent State through my four years and um, had incredible coaching and, and mentorship. And it's the reason I'm coaching now was my experience there. You mentioned skiing. How much did that help you with your golf and did it help you with your golf? I don't know. I mean, my I, I loved I, – I was a racer. I, I raced. I think it helped get me more into golf because I think it, as you got older through the ski racing um, – 
it got the races got faster and faster. So mm. it used to be slalom and then GS, and then I got to age 16 and I started doing downhill, and I did not like the feeling of going that fast. <laughs> so um, I was like, wow, I think golf is really my sport. <laughs> so, uh, but I think you know, being a part of a team, it was like a really fun team environment, and you know, I I, I lifted, and so I was in this, I was into doing some strength and conditioning programs even before um, it kind of got really big in, in golf. So I think it helped just having a strong lower body that was huge and, and uh, attacking, right? Like the discipline of that um, and the aggressiveness of, of playing, of skiing was, was helpful. But um, yeah, it was a good childhood. I love one. So this is a golf podcast, but I go into all kinds of things. Explain to our listeners what it's like going down that slope at whatever mile an hour. <laughs> I mean, talk about an uh, adrenaline rush. A little different than a three footer yeah, to wind. No, <laughs> yeah, no, it's a totally different. It's a totally different feeling. But I actually love slalom, which is a very technical uh, mm. race of so short, quick turns, um, and a lot of timing and rhythm. And I think that was like, yeah, golf. Golf and slalom ski racing were like two of my favorite things. Um, I played all surface sports growing up, but those two were my favorite. Do you look for kids when you're recruiting to play other sports? Because I know a lot of coaches do. Yeah, we do. Um, you know, to be able to to transition uh, to collegiate golf, um, that athleticism is really, really important. Um, and I think being able to be a part of a team, be a part of the team culture and really see how special that could be college golf and just college athletics. It's one of the last times in your life where you're surrounded by people who are all trying to accomplish the same goal. And like, once you play professional golf on your own, you're on your own. Yeah. And so the kids who come from these other sport backgrounds understand that. I think it's really special. Um, and then on top of it, I mean, we're developing a lot of our players like through their four years and that athleticism and that feel, um, it, it, it can, not always, but it can be a big help in helping them, you know, learn how to hit different shots around the greens, which is what we spend a lot of time on and learning how to shape shots a little bit better. They, they tend to have a little better feel of the club base, um, feel of the path, those types of things, um, and it makes it a little bit easier, but not always. I mean, I've had some tremendous golfers that only ever golf. Um, so not always the case. But, boy, swing speed for the for the kids that come in that have played other sports, that usually is a nice, strong correlation there. Absolutely. Um, we're seeing these kids swing it faster and faster and faster, and it's, it's so fun. Is that one of the things you've <laughs> seen change over the years is speed now in the golf swing and, and people working out to, to get more speed? Oh yeah. Yeah. I think there's more and more athletes playing, playing golf. I mean, we're getting, we've got a player coming in here that averages 102 mile per hour swing speed. I've never seen that before. And, you know, we'll play every once in a while, we play a course that I played in college and it makes me laugh so hard because they're taking lines off the tee that I never even would have thought about. Yeah, no, <laughs> yeah. it's true. It tells you a little bit about my golf game probably, but you know, I, I think of some, some different holes out there. Like, I played at Biltmore down in Miami. Um, yep. Boy, our team plays it completely different than I did. Completely different. How have um, you made it? That? That's got to be a big adjustment for you uh, in, in, the, in watching over the years <laughs> that, that change in your coaching uh, and when you oh, yeah. practice rounds. Yeah. 
funny. It makes me laugh. I, I think it's really funny, but it is so impressive to see. And you, you see it when you're around the, the ladies on the LPGA Tour and and the time that you spend at the U.S. Women's Am. I mean, these girls crush it. It's so fun. I mean, the sport has changed so much in the last 15, 20 years. Um, man, it's... Uh, Tells you a little bit about my age now. I'm like, man, I don't know if I'm one of the young coaches anymore. Well, get, I don't get, think I am. Get on the bus with me, and you'll really figure it out. That's I played right. with a wooden driver, so I mean, uh, yeah, it you just know, it is amazing because of what you said. I think they have better instruction, like you said, you had instruction once you got to Kent State, and and yeah. they access to all the technology, but they know how to use the technology. Only thing I see sometimes, and not all is they spend so much time with the technology that they forget about the feel and they'll hit a shot and they look back here at the launch monitor and goes, Oh, but you yeah. got to watch the shot. And I think you can fall into yeah. that trap too of being too that, but that's me being old school, I guess, versus some of the younger yeah. guys. It, it doesn't bother them. It, 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 it kind of intimidates me a little bit more. Uh, but for these young players playing out there, it doesn't intimidate them at all. And I know you've, you all have all the gadgets and all that stuff. And, and it's, yeah. uh, and you're TPI certified. You understand all the the launch monitors, uh, and and that's uh, yeah. that's a that's a that's that's a, a different, uh, like you said, from when you started coaching to where you are now. But yeah. uh, you you said you played professionally. Did I read you were on the Big Break Three, ladies only? Am I correct? <laughs> I Am I making that up yeah. in my brain? No, no, that is correct. Big Break Three, ladies only. It was the first all women's cast. It was very cool. It was uh, when I was still playing professional golf, so it was a uh, it was a great opportunity for me to try and get um, the the winners receive two LPGA Tour exemptions. So um, that was a big motivator for me. Um, but yeah, it was a fabulous time. It was uh, Vince Cellini was our yep. host. I don't know if you remember that. Yep, guy. sure do. Uh, it was up at uh, Kingsmill Resort in Virginia. That's right. I watched it. Yeah, Kingsmill. I won there. Yeah, hundred thousand oh, years yeah. ago mm-hmm. but uh yeah because uh, we always teased uh, tom abbott who hosted for so many years it'd be great to bring that show yeah. back because i thought it was wonderful and the further along it you I know gave people such a great opportunity you're seeing like you said there's there's uh, jarena pillar we're going to go on and on uh about yeah. the players guys on the men's tour and, and it really got better and better uh it yeah. was pretty cool but uh, I know all the secrets to it because Tom's kind of given those out, but uh, <laughs> that had to be a great experience. Why did you get into coaching, and who you know when, who gave you your first shot at coaching? Yeah, I mean, uh, back at Kent State, and everything kind of loops back there for me. Uh, it was one of the greatest decisions I ever made uh, was to go to Kent State. But, uh, yeah, I, I, as a Canadian, too, it was even more difficult because – you know, I played the, the now Epson Tour for, for three years and just wasn't seeing the progress that I needed, and it was expensive. Like, I didn't have yeah. a ton of backing, and, you know, I'd work all winter, and I uh, just wasn't seeing the progress that I felt I needed to see, and I, I gave it three very good years. Uh, I was like, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it right, and, uh, you know, I lived down in Dallas, Texas, and uh, I worked my butt off. I love to practice, so I, I was a practicer, and... Um, so I, I don't regret anything there, uh, but I always knew in the back of my mind that I wanted to coach. Like I studied sport management in, in university at Kent State, and um, you know I, I knew I wanted to stay in the sport. And when I when I was 17 and I came down to university at, at Kent State, I was like, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. Like I'm such a golf nerd and golf junkie, and I was like, you mean to tell me like I can get the scholarship? 
and be on this team of other <laughs> girls that love to play golf and go and they're gonna pay for me to like travel around and play in all these tournaments I was just in heaven and I've been in heaven ever since I mean I've been uh, I've been able to be at some great universities um you know I would say my big break was uh, obviously Kent State they gave me my my visa so I could actually work in the U.S. so that that was huge and that experience of being on the other side uh, with my coaches, like, hey, oh, now I know why you made the, some of these decisions that you made in, right. in the qualifying and those types of things. And it all came together, and I just, you know, I learned a ton from two of the greatest coaches in, in college golf and, and learned to win in the Midwest, right? Like, how do you win in the Midwest? Being a mid-major nonetheless, right? Right. So, my big break, I got to be an assistant at Duke. Um, so I got to learn from, from Dan Brooks and – um, you know, so I went Kent State, learned that Midwest thing, and then uh, got to be around Amanda Blumenhurst, who was a three-time National Player of the Year. I got to coach her her senior year at Duke, and uh, that was pretty special. And to to see how uh, Coach Brooks like coached his team there uh, was an incredible experience for me. And so it it opened a lot of doors. And I think with with hard work plus um, being able to be around these well-respected coaches. Um, opened quite a few doors for me, and, and I've been incredibly grateful for that. What was the biggest lesson you learned from Dan Brooks? And I'm not going to hold it against you that you went down to Gainesville, but that's okay. <laughs> um, communication. He's an incredible communicator, uh, both listener and speaker. Um, and I think he was able to connect with his players because of that. Um, and parents and swing coaches and, and learning how to manage the the nucleus around these high high performer players. Um, so I'd say that was the biggest thing I took away from him. All right, I got mentioned Gainesville. He spent three years down there recruiting completely different than yeah. you were at Kent State, Duke, and now Florida and the SEC Southern. Uh, what was that uh, those three years like in, in Gainesville? I mean, I, I didn't know what I was doing. Um, you know, I was kind of flying by the seat of my pants and really learning how to be, become my best coach, right? Like, I probably spent the first year thinking, well, what would Mike say? What would Herb say? What would Dan say in this situation? And and I finally, you know, I was able to finally, with probably within my second or third year, be able to go, okay, what the lessons I learned from them were, were fabulous, but I have to be me. I have to be my authentic self. And I, I, I think probably every first time head coach goes through that experience. Um, you know, but you know, at Florida, I mean, it was an amazing experience. I still can't believe they gave me that opportunity. I was 27 years old um, when I was first a head coach there. And, um, you know, I got to work with some great players and some great families and um, you know, our, our team got better there and, uh, it just wasn't the right fit for me personally, but uh, it was it was a great great spot. And then uh, you had led me to your favorite. And place. then you yeah. head to God's country, Knoxville, Tennessee. <laughs> I did hit God's country. I sure <laughs> did. Yes. <laughs> uh, and amazing, I I worked for Judy. It was a really cool experience to kind of go back to being an assistant. Uh, I had a totally different perspective, so I really understood what Judy was going through and different. Um, different things would come up throughout a, throughout a like a school year, um, recruiting players, those types of things. But I ended up doing a ton of like practice setup stuff, and uh, and now our assistant coach is someone I coached 
uh, our assistant coach at Michigan is who I was coaching when I was at Tennessee. So uh, we we work with some great people and great coaches down there at Tennessee too. And they finally got the building put up, and it's incredible. Uh, the Beautiful. view there yeah. is, is just phenomenal, what they've got on the river, and it's uh, amazing. You get to go uh, to Ann Arbor where you are now. You got to call. Uh, what was that day like, the day that you were named the head coach uh, at Michigan? Yeah, uh, pretty special. I knew I'd been to enough universities to know what I wanted at that point. And uh, when this opportunity came up, I jumped on it so fast. Um, you know, I think one of the questions I was asked when I was an assistant kind of working through is like, do you have a dream school? And I, I said, no, I don't, I don't have a dream school. I want a place that is going to give me the resources to be successful. Um, and you know, that really believe in the student athlete experience, right? Like, <laughs> like school is still a really big part of the experience here at Michigan and, you know, I, I'm still in class still in person in class all the time here at Michigan. And uh, that's something that the university takes a lot of pride in. Um, and so I believe, I believe in the collegiate system. I believe in, in that and Michigan uh, really kind of fit the bill. And then personally, I'm four hours from my family up in Canada, even though they're on the other side of the border. Um, that was an attraction and Ann Arbor, you know, I'm not from a big city. Um, I wanted something bigger than like a 20,000, person town and uh ann arbor is the kind of the perfect mix for me it's 150,000 people it's not a big city like chicago or atlanta or something like that but i didn't i didn't want that either so um kind of really been the perfect place i met my husband here uh we now have a baby boy uh who's seven months old now and uh yeah life is good i've got this great place where i'm challenged um Kind of from the coaching and recruiting standpoint, it's very competitive and fun for me. Um, and uh, I still get my winter as a Canadian. Got that, got that blood in me. So you can't get it. that out. That's always going to be there. <laughs> right. you, you mentioned right. being a mom, and Corey Hankus has been on the podcast. What's it like? How you yeah. juggle being a mom, a wife, a coach? Because you're kind of a mom to these players too. I mean, yeah. what's it been like yeah. juggling that? Uh, I don't sleep anymore. I don't think, um, <laughs> I don't know when that's ever going to come back, but it's all totally worth it. Um, I have a great assistant coach. Um, and that role was always important, but it's become more and more important. That's opened my eyes. I've delegated more than I ever have as a kind of type a coach who wants to be the center of all this stuff. Um, I've given some of the stuff up and I think you have to, um, and, but in turn, I've got to hire great people that I can trust and um, that we can build that trust quickly. So AJ Newell has been incredible. She's a fellow Vol there, Jim. And I know. Uh, I know. Incredibly smart person. But, you know, I think, again, I think that's that's some of it. Um, I don't know if I have all the answers yet. My little guy's only seven months old. So um, this year, you know, he's not in school yet. So that makes it a little bit easier. Um, and I, I live so so close to work. I, I live within a three or four minute drive, um, so that makes things a lot easier. So I keep keep the world pretty small and and trust people, and uh, I think that helps. Uh, that helps a lot. Absolutely. Now you've coached some elite players. You've been uh, an assistant coach uh, 
with Ann Walker for the uh, international team of the Arnold Palmer Cup. But I always ask this question. That's why the book Only One Shot was uh, written. What separates that elite golfer? What makes an elite golfer or athlete, uh, in your opinion? And you've been an athlete and a, and a golfer. Not golfers aren't, but you were a skier and all that. What separates that elite uh, from the rest? I think they know themselves really well. Mm. I think they, even for uh, as young as these people are, you know, they're still only in their early 20s when they graduate, which to me is still a baby now. Um, gosh, they, they, they know themselves really well, and they're comfortable in their own skin. Yeah, and of course, there's the skill. There's the skill set piece, but um, you know they learn very quickly what works for them and what doesn't, and they tend to kind of keep some of the noise at bay. That's, um, that's... I, I think that's a huge part of being successful in, in any realm, but but golf in particular. How do you like? That's a great kind of segue into like the kids now with social media it's uh it, and mm-hmm. and i know just in my business you know announcing you'll have people just want to take a shot at you just to do it and you got to block out the noise I always that's the word we like to mm-hmm. say for like jordan spieth when he was struggling block out the noise um, mm-hmm. how do you you know advise those kids that you your, your student athletes with social media be careful and, and not be too caught up in it uh how, how do you advise them in that hey we talk about it i actually um just had a I'm in a coaches group um, that coach all sorts of different sports uh, called what drives winning and we were talking about this yesterday and I think it's just having conversations every once in a while and not to be like get off the phone or anything like that it's never gonna happen shoot I don't even do it right like I'm on my phone a lot like we all have to be on our phones and so it's having mature conversations about like what's actually really happening and uh, one of the one of the images I want to show our team is this, this, I don't know if it's easy to describe on a podcast, essentially this girl looking at her phone and it's this perfect picture of her and then her actual image reflecting back and it's her crying. Mm. And it's like, what does that mean to you? It's like everybody has this person that they show on social media. um, And then it's who they actually are, which doesn't mean they're actually out all the time but it's just that it's not who they really are and i think just having those conversations showing them that image and saying what do you guys see here um and just reminding them that it's not real life that is not real life and that the pressure that they now have with nil now oh they've got to have their brand now you got now yep. it's not just like you got to impress your friends it's like you got to have your brand and you're trying to become this millionaire through nil and it's just it's too much um, and so I think just having, at, not even talking to them about it, it's more just asking them questions because they're extremely intelligent group of people. And, you know, as, I think it's just having those open conversations here and there and reminding ourselves like, Hey, like this is not real life. And, you know, try not, try not to let it distract you too much from, from the person you want to become. Yeah. It's, it's a challenge. I see it. We're, we're all guilty mm-hmm. of it. That phone's a, attached to us and yeah. and you're right. It's yeah. it, it, now with that NIL, then you got the transfer portal. There's so many things that have yeah. made your uh, job so much tougher, but uh, what's the typical, we'll let you go. Cause I know you're so busy. What's a typical day in the life uh, of a, of a golfer, the women's team uh, starting in the morning workouts and whatever, what would be a typical day uh, for your players? Yeah, they've got a class in the morning. Um, 
you know, eight eight thirty or so, eight thirty or nine till you know one or two, depending on the day. And then we're practicing in the afternoons. Uh, typically, depending on the time of year, we'll either work out after practice or uh, in the morning before the, before they they get going for class. So. Uh, we try to limit, like in the winter, we'll actually work out in the evening, uh, which the team appreciates. But uh, during our season, we, we get up early a couple couple mornings a week. And our team likes that. They actually requested it. So, wow. Um, I'm kind of glad. I know. I'm kind of glad it was driven by them. Uh, but, yeah, it's uh, it's a busy time. You know, they finish practice. And um, depending on the day, some of them go grab a quick dinner at our training you know, their training table, and then they, they head over to the academic center. And they're either meeting with a tutor or, or getting some of their own schoolwork done, and they get back at it the next day. It's a busy, busy time. They they have to be they have to love what they're doing, yeah. and I think they have to be incredibly um, incredibly smart with how they manage their time. They, they can't waste a whole lot of time, but uh, things are about to get going. They've had this nice summer and super chill and playing some tournaments, and it's about to – we're about to hit the go button here, so uh, it's exciting. Yeah, it's, it's a about... lot of fun. There's a lot of fun energy out here. So. Yeah, I bet, especially the last two seasons. Time management, it's falling in love with what you're doing, and there's no question. What's uh, looking ahead to the fall season and for the next upcoming season? What are you excited about with your team? Yeah, I mean, we've got basically like four, our four, four of our big players from our lineup last year are back so that's really exciting um we have five tournaments this fall uh, from the great players from our team we got invited to the annika invitational so we're so excited about that so our first tournament of the of the fall is the annika in minnesota at royal golf club which was designed by annika which is very yeah cool. um yeah and uh so we're, that's that's the first one and our team's so excited about it because this is the group that earned that invitation. Um, so, so they're thrilled about that. And then we're going to Knoxville, Tennessee. So Back to God's country. Down to play, play Cherokee. That's right. So AJ is pretty excited to show the team her, her old stomping grounds. And uh, we play three more this fall, very challenging schedule. We go to the Windy City. Uh, the Ruth Crest down in North Carolina and then back to Willington, North Carolina for the landfall. So very busy fall. We have three freshmen coming in and, um, you know, that they got five fabulous role models to learn from. And, um, it's going to, it's going to be a challenge for them to get into the lineup. Um, but you know, they're, they're going to step up and and work hard and and see what it takes to, to be a successful program. There's a lot, of, a lot of good times in Ann Arbor. You've done a great job. You're becoming one of the best coaches. Your program's so competitive. I know that's been a lot of fun. Uh, I like to end the podcast with this, whether life or golf, you got to make it count. You're making it count in these young women's lives, and we appreciate you being with us today. And Good luck this fall. Can't wait to see uh, how y'all get uh, going, and hope to see you out there in Greyhawk again. 